Amen. Praise the Lord. I'm going to invite you to turn to, um, well, let me start you off with two openings of Scripture this evening, John chapter 14 and Acts chapter 10. We started a series several weeks ago that we've entitled Healing in the Blood of Jesus, and we're using as a, as a kind of a kickoff point for that, the foundation for our teaching, a book that was written or um, a book that was published in 1930 by Dr. T.J. McCrossin. Now, if you've been with us, you know that uh, uh, we've shared with you before that, uh, that this was a book that Brother Hagen was familiar with and, and would talk about, he would make mention of and, and refer to um, as having been something that uh, was a great blessing to him. Dr. McCrossin was a, uh, a Greek scholar, and he was very knowledgeable in the Greek language, and he brought out a lot of truths that, uh, that you and I might miss from the King James just because he understood the language and, uh, and uh, how the words were used, and, and so it brought forth additional meaning. And so anyway, Brother Hagen got, um, uh, um, somehow got the idea to, to have somebody research it and, and check to see if they could purchase the rights to the book to have it reprinted, and they did, and you can still get a copy of from their ministry, and, uh, and, and it's just exactly what, uh, what he described. It, Dr. McCrossin was a very scholarly uh, individual, a very scholarly minister. It's not necessarily an easy read. It takes you some time to really think and, okay, now what, what is this saying? And he refers back to certain things, and he, and he covers his tracks so well with, uh, with additional references and, and things like that that it's not something you just sit down and, and read through. But if you really take your time and go through it, as we're trying to do with some of these uh, healing school services, it brings out some truths that, uh, well, in my case, personally, just literally sets you free. And so we're going through uh, Dr. McCrossin's, uh, he has uh, the divisions in his book. Uh, the first division is six reasons why everybody should believe that Jesus is, is their healer. And so we've gotten down to reason number three. I think we're about uh, six weeks into this. And so uh, it's taking us a lot longer than it took for him to write it to, uh, to go through some of these things. But the third reason that he gives that we want to talk about tonight is that sickness is of Satan. You should believe that healing belongs to you because sickness is of Satan, and Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Now, in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, Peter is preaching in Cornelius' house. He's preaching to people that are Gentiles, people that are not part of the Jewish race. This is the first uh, individual case where the, uh, God instructed the gospel to be sent to the Gentiles. And, uh, and this is new territory for Peter and his company. They've never done this before. This is contrary to the law of Moses about what they were commanded in the Old Covenant to do and, and that type of thing. But they've been sent supernaturally by the Holy Ghost to do this. And so Peter is explaining some things about Jesus' ministry, not expecting that they know anything about Jesus, and apparently they didn't. And he says something that summarizes Jesus' ministry in Acts 10.38. He said, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost in power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. All that were oppressed of the devil. Now, the Bible says very specifically, very clearly, the language is absolutely exact. It says that those that Jesus healed were oppressed of the devil. It also says that the good that Jesus did included healing. That's not the only good thing that Jesus did. But the good that the Bible identifies as a, as a part of what Jesus did was healing. So I want you to keep those thoughts in mind. Healing is good, according to what the Bible says, and those that Jesus healed were oppressed of the devil. Now Jesus said in John chapter 14, I'm sorry, somebody's going to have to help me with this. I don't have it, my Bible turned in that, uh, uh, to that opening. But Jesus is, uh, is sharing with his disciples about going away to the Father and, and that type of thing. And Thomas speaks up and he says, show us the Father. 
And Jesus responds and says, Have I been so long with you, Thomas? And, and, and you don't know the Father. You're asking to see the Father, but I say unto you, He that has seen me has seen the Father. That's about verse 6, 7, 8, somewhere around there, right? Somebody got that? What verse is it? Verse 9. Okay, I was close. He that has seen me has seen the Father. Now, I want you to get that. Jesus is saying, and the language is exact, once again, he means exactly what he's saying. He's saying, you can tell God by looking at me. Now, so many times in the church world, people have the idea, and they just kind of say it flippantly. I don't think they really think about what they're saying. It's just one of those denominational things or religious sayings that people come up with. Well, you just never know what God's going to do. Jesus said that wasn't true. Jesus said, if you wanted to know what God does, look at me. That's exactly what he means. He that has seen me has seen the Father. He's saying, if you want to see what the Father does, look at me. Now, why is that? Well, John chapter 6 and verse 38, Jesus, in speaking to his disciples and to others, said this. He said, I came from heaven not to do my own will, but to, to do the will of him that sent me. So Jesus is saying, you put these verses together, Jesus is saying everything he did, he did by the will of the Father. Everything he, you can see him do is the same thing God does because he's doing the will of the Father. Now, Jesus is doing the will of the Father in Acts chapter 10 and verse 38 by, number one, being anointed of the Holy Ghost, number two, going around doing good and healing. Well, who did he heal? All that were oppressed of the devil. Why? Because God was with him. In other words, he's operating in the will of God. Now, hold your finger here in Acts chapter 10, but turn back with me to Luke chapter 4 because the Bible says that Jesus was anointed. Let's see when he was anointed. Or see what he said about being anointed. The anointing that he's talking about is when Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan River. The Bible says that there was a, a supernatural occurrence that took place at that point. Did I say John or Luke? What did I say? Luke chapter 4 is where I want you to go. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, when Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan River, there was a voice from heaven that came out and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. There was a, 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 a something that came down from heaven. The Holy Spirit came down from heaven in bodily shape, the Bible says, as a dove. Now, it doesn't say it was a dove. A lot of people get the idea that, uh, and again, this is religious notion, that some bird flew down from heaven. That's not what it says. It says that something, well, you know, that was the Holy Ghost, came down from heaven and landed on Jesus. It was something that everybody beheld, everybody witnessed, but it wasn't something that they could identify and say, that is such and such. That is a bird. That is a cloak. That is something, whatever. They couldn't tell. It was something like a bird would come down from heaven and land on Jesus and stayed there. So you've got, Je- you've got the Godhead in all three manifestations. You've got Jesus being baptized. You've got God speaking. You've got the Holy Ghost coming upon him. Here's the fullness of God in manifestation when Jesus is anointed by John in the Jordan River. Now, what did Jesus say after he returned from being baptized in the Jordan River? Notice it says in verse 14, Luke chapter 4 and verse 14, this is after Jesus was tempted of the devil in the wilderness, after he'd been there for 40 days. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. And there went out a fame of him throughout all the regions round about, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. Now it tells us what he taught in Nazareth. He, when he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for a read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Now I want you to get what Jesus preaches. The first teaching that Jesus does that we have record of him after he was filled with the, after he was anointed of the Holy Ghost 
in the Jordan River when he was baptized, is Jesus is saying, now I'm anointed. Do you see that? This has to be what Acts 10.38 is talking about, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power. Luke 4.14 says he just returned in the power of the Spirit. So he's anointed with the Holy Ghost, he's anointed with power, right? Got to be talking about the same thing. So notice what Jesus said. He said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. Well, what are you anointed to do, Jesus? First thing he says is, he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Second thing he says is, he's anointed me to heal the brokenhearted. Now, so many times people reading this, and it's easy to make the mistake from the King James. People reading this in the King James or modern day English Bibles, something along those lines, they'll see the word or the term brokenhearted and they'll think he's talking about emotional hurts. Well, because I, I was brokenhearted. When somebody did me wrong, I was brokenhearted. When I got divorced, I was brokenhearted. When somebody left me, when this happened, when that happened, I was brokenhearted. When I was disappointed, I was brokenhearted. We get so feelings-oriented that we automatically think he's talking about feelings, and he's not. This literally means breach in spirit. Brokenhearted means breach in spirit. Now, folks, stick with me here on something because I want to try to explain what Acts 10.38 is really trying to tell you. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. Dr. McCrossan brings out that the word, the Greek word that's translated oppressed in Acts 10.38 is the present participle for the word that literally means I exercise dominion over. I exercise dominion over. Here, it's saying that Jesus is anointed to heal those that were brokenhearted or heal those that were affected by the breach in spirit. Now, one of the greatest things that people have difficulty with when it comes to accepting their healing or receiving their healing is they don't know where sickness comes from. Because there's so much wrong teaching in the church that says God sometimes brings sickness upon you. He's trying to teach you this, or He's trying to perfect you in this, or whatever. Yet the Bible says that that cannot be true. For example, James chapter 1 and verse 17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from above. From the Father of lights, in whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. That means God's one way and only one way. He doesn't play both sides of the street on any issue. I know a lot of people are, are, are of the opinion that, well, sometimes it's like this and sometimes it's like this. Not with God. It's always like this. It's always the same. He never changes. That's what James 1.17 is telling us. It's saying every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from above. That means every gift that's going to perfect you. Every gift that is going to perfect you. Every gift that is good is going to come down from heaven because that's where God is. He's the Father of lights. Now, for people to say that sickness is used of God to perfect you would have to mean that sickness is coming from heaven if James 1.17 is true. The problem is, the Bible says very specifically, there is no sickness in heaven. Folks, I'm from Alabama by way of Oklahoma. Born and raised in Alabama, lived in Oklahoma while I worked with Brother Hagin, and then we moved out to California. I came from Alabama to Oklahoma. I couldn't come from Texas to Oklahoma because I wasn't in Texas. You can only come from where you are. You can only come from where you started off from. Sickness can only come from where it starts. 
And the Bible says very specifically, there is no sickness in heaven, meaning there can never be any sickness that can be used by God to perfect you because it can't come from heaven. Or, if some will say, well, and all that, you're just you're splitting hairs on words. It, it, it can mean, if, if that's what it means, then we need to tear James chapter 1 out because it's not to be trusted. If God was to use sickness, according to James 1, and we can prove it by the Scriptures too, He'd have to use it from heaven because that's the only place where God is. Sickness can't come from heaven because it's not there. Well, then where did sickness come from? The Bible tells us the story of creation. It tells us that God created the heavens and the earth and He made everything that He made within six days. The end of that period of time, it said, and God rested. Literally from the Hebrew, it means God put an end to everything that He made. Everything, therefore, that God made was made in days one through six and nothing else. He's never made anything else. He made everything in days one through six. You go back and look at the Genesis account of creation and tell me what day sickness was made on. You can't find it. You can't find sickness being made by God. In fact, the Bible says at the end of day six, God looked at it and He said, this is very good. Well, what made it very good? Because there was nothing to hurt man. There was nothing to destroy man. There was nothing to hinder man in any, what, any way whatsoever. In fact, by day, the end of day six, God had created man, put him in the middle of His creation here on the earth, and had given him dominion over all the works of His hands. Now, that's an important thing to keep in mind. Because God's plan, Genesis 1, 26, let us make man in our own image and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air and everything that creeps upon the earth. Psalm 2, verse 8, I think it is, goes a little bit further. Or Psalm 6, verse 8, or maybe Psalm 8, verse 6. It's Psalm 8, about verse 6, says this. It says, Thou madest him to have dominion over all the works of your hands. That's the Holy Ghost telling us how God originally created things. So how did God set things up? When He says at the end of day six, it is very good, what system is in place? Man has dominion over everything that God's created. And sickness is not included in the list of anything that God created. When does sickness come on the scene then? After man sins. After man disobeys God and obeys the devil's instruction and eats of the forbidden tree. That's when you see sin and sickness begin to come on the scene. So what has happened? What happened was through Adam and Eve's sin, there was a breach in spirit. There was a breach or a brokenness in the spiritual system that God established. Can you understand what that's saying? That's the healing the brokenhearted that Jesus is talking about. Jesus is saying because there was a brokenness, a broken system, when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, that created the opportunity for sin and sickness to have dominion over man. But that's not the way God created it to be. That's not the way God intended for it to be. That's not what it was like when God said, this is very good. So then where did sickness come from? It didn't come from God. It came as a result of sin because the devil is the author of sin. So in Acts chapter 10 and verse 38, where it says, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost in power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, it's literally saying He went about healing all those over whom sickness had dominion. 
Do you understand what that means? That means that Jesus meant a lot more when he said, He that has seen me has seen the Father, and the I only do the will of my Father, not my own will, but the will of my Father. That means we can see a lot of things in Jesus that will explain things to us in this modern day and enable us to walk in the fullness of what God has provided for us. How? Well, let's think about some things that we saw Jesus do. We saw Jesus exercising dominion over evil spirits, didn't we? I tell you what, why don't you turn with me back to Luke chapter 4. We started there. Let me show you something else in Luke chapter 4. Jesus goes on to speak about what he's anointed to do, and then he tells the crowd, this day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. In other words, he's saying what I just quoted from Isaiah chapter 61, I believe it is. He said, that's talking about me. And everybody said, well, the words sound good, but... We don't know. We, you grew up here in this town. We know you. How could you be the one that, that, that would fulfill all of these things? Yet we have heard things about you in Capernaum. Why don't you do those same miracles here? The Bible tells us that Jesus couldn't in Nazareth do any of those mighty works because of the unbelief of the people. But Jesus went further. He went forward. He went to do the works where people would accept him. Notice it says... Uh, um, Verse 31, and he came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and taught them on the Sabbath days. And they were astonished at his doctrine, for his word was with power. Folks, please understand, they were not astonished at him, they were astonished at his doctrine. Doctrine means teaching. They said, we've never heard any teaching like this. What made his teaching different than anything they'd heard the rabbis teach and everything they were used to as far as the Old Covenant and the Old Testament law and prophets and so forth? What made Jesus' teaching different? His word was with power. Now, folks, I want you to understand something. He hasn't done one simple miracle yet. They're astonished before they see him do anything. So don't get the idea that he, his word was with power means they saw him do miracles and so they said, wow. If that's what caused them to be astonished, they wouldn't have been astonished at his teaching. They would have been astonished at him. You know, that's the way it works in the modern day church. You find somebody that God uses in miracles, people aren't astonished at their doctrine. They're astonished at how God uses him. Wow, he's really got some power, doesn't he? That's not their attitude toward Jesus. Yet Jesus had the spirit without measure. Why not? Because his word was with power. Literally, it means this. It means his teaching was that you or man has dominion. That's what they were astonished at. They were astonished at the teaching that God's original plan and His purpose for being here on the earth, Jesus' purpose now for being here on the earth to destroy the works of the devil, was to restore man's dominion. That's what blew their minds. Because Jesus is not just saying, I'm the Son of God and watch what I can do. Jesus is saying, I'm here at the direction of God, God sent me so that you could, could enter into that place of restored dominion that God always planned for His man. That's what they were astonished at. They were astonished because His Word was with power. Their, his teaching said they could operate in power and dominion. And in the synagogue, here it's put to the test. And in the synagogue, there was a man which had a spirit of an unclean devil crying out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. Verse 35, And Jesus rebuked him. What did Jesus do? He exercised dominion. 
the very same dominion he's been teaching that man has, ha- is, has available to him, now he exercises dominion. He, Jesus said, he that's seen me has seen the Father. Now, folks, here's what I want you to understand. If we ever see Jesus in the slightest, most minor thing, ever doing something contrary to God's will or something God has already done, then Jesus is a lawbreaker. So what do we know from what Jesus has just shown us? We know that it's never the will of God for man to be dominated by evil spirits. We know that it's never the will of God for man to be dominated by the devil in any way whatsoever. It's never God's plan for man to be under the dominion of Satan, whether it's sin, whether it's sickness, whether it's satanic oppression, whatever it is. It's never the will of God for that to take place. Furthermore, since Jesus is showing us the pattern that reveals the Father to us, we can clearly see that the system that God intends man to operate from is one where man's words govern natural things. Let's go a little bit further. He rebukes the spirit and says, Hold your peace, come out of him. And when the devil had thrown him in the midst, he came out of him and hurt him not. And all were amazed and spake among themselves, saying, Wow, this Jesus guy has really got power. Are you reading with me? That's not what they said, is it? Why not? Wouldn't that be a legitimate thing for them to say? What is keeping them from saying, Wow, Jesus, you the man. What is keeping them from looking at Jesus and attaching their awe and their wonder on Him? Because He's simply doing what He has taught them that anybody can do because of the God's plan and God's system. They said, what a word, what a doctrine, what a teaching. It's all the same word. He's saying, what kind of teaching is this? For with power He casts out evil spirits. What a word is this? For with authority and power, he commandeth the evil spirits and they come out. What, is he say? what are they saying? They're saying, we recognize the, Jesus has just done what he taught could be done. So what do they magnify? Jesus? No, they magnify the teaching. What does that tell us? That tells us that Jesus put more importance on the teaching, the truth, than he did on himself. If his teaching had been, I'm the one with power, they would have focused on him and not the teaching. Can you see that? He goes further. Verse 37, And the fame of him went out into every place of the country round about. Now here they're talking about this guy's doing what he's teaching. No question about it. He's getting recognition. But the way that the Holy Ghost refers this to us or relates this to us shows us that Jesus emphasized the teaching and not himself. In fact, Jesus tells us the same thing. He said, I of, my own, of myself can do nothing. He said, it's the Father in me that does the works. Jesus never magnified himself. He never drew attention to himself and said, I'm the guy. No, instead, he said, God's using me. I'm just the, 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 ve- the vessel, the vehicle by which God is showing himself strong. And therefore, when you see what I'm doing, you know that it's God that's doing it in, in me and through me. He that's seen me has seen the Father. Verse 38, And he arose out of the synagogue and entered into Simon's house, and Simon's wife's mother was taken with a great fever, as they besought, and they besought him for her. And Jesus stood over her and rebuked the fever. 
He rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she arose and ministered unto them. Now, what happens here? Just as Jesus has previously, in the previous verses, has rebuked the evil spirit, and it came out, he now rebukes fever or sickness. So what do we see from Jesus' example? We see, number one, it's not God's will for somebody to be sick, or else he would have been working contrary to the will of God to rebuke the fever. And second, we see that the system is exactly what he's been teaching, that man's words exercise dominion over natural circumstances. In this case, a physical condition. Here's one of the hardest things for people, for Christians, to seem to get a handle on. And that is this. Most of the laws of nature that we understand and operate by in this present day came into being not because God created it that way, but because man fell in the Garden of Eden. God's plan in the Garden of Eden, His original system in the Garden of Eden was that man would have dominion over everything that, that was created. Man's words, that's the way God created it. He had to intend for man to operate in the same way. Man's words were designed to control this environment. But when those laws were broken, those spirit, that spiritual system was broken, or there was a breach in spirit, meaning the spiritual system, then all of a sudden sin began to dominate over man, sickness began to dominate man, and he was under bondage. In most cases, he was ruled and governed by things that he could not exercise any control over, not because he didn't have dominion, because he didn't know he had it and couldn't use it, therefore. So what happens with Jesus? Jesus comes on the scene and says, Guys, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And the Father God has sent me to teach you how the original system is to operate. What did He teach man? He taught man the goodness of God and how to operate in faith. Let me give you another example. you got Jesus that says to the disciples, Let's go to the other side of the sea. Jesus goes into the ship. He's tired from ministering. He goes into the back of the ship and he goes to sleep. And while they're out in the middle of the sea, there's a great storm of wind that arises. And man, the boat's being tossed back and forth. And one of the disciples, I think it was Peter, goes and shakes Jesus and wakes him up and says, Master, don't you care that we're going to die? Think about that. Think about what Peter's saying. We're about to die. Don't sleep through this. Wake up and be afraid like the rest of us. <laughs> What's he trying? What's he after? Jesus isn't bothered by it because he said, we're going to the other side. It doesn't matter whether the water's smooth or whether the water's rough. Jesus said, you're going to the other side, you're going to the other side. He's not going to stay awake to make sure it happens. That tells us a little something about how the system works too. The Bible says it's vain for man to stay up late trying to ensure things that he's supposed to exercise dominion over. It's vain for him to rise up early to make sure everything's taken care of. Get your rest. God's not asleep. No reason for both of you to be up. So Peter wakes Jesus up. Don't you care, Master? Don't you care that we're about to perish? And what does Jesus do? Jesus stands up and rebukes the storm. He says, peace be still. Now, what does that tell us? It tells us God's not in storms. Because if God's in the storm and Jesus rebukes the storm, then He's working contrary to the will of His Father. That makes Him a sinner, a lawbreaker. So it tells us God's not in the storm. 
Where do storms come from? Now, I know people want to try to look for the devil in everything. I, I, that's, I'm not interested in that. Jesus didn't go looking for the devil. When the devil showed up, Jesus said, shut up and come out. I like that pattern. There's no point in going to look for the devil under every rock. Well, Pastor Mike, I've got a headache. Maybe I've got a demon. That's not the way it works, folks. And so that's not the question I'm asking. I'm not saying, is the devil behind every storm? I don't believe he is. Well, then why in the world would Jesus, without ever having to pray, without ever having to check and say, no, no, but wait a minute, Father, this windstorm, is this one of you? Well, it can't be of God because everything that comes from God comes from heaven. And there are no storms in heaven. Just like there was no fever in heaven, so Jesus didn't have to pray, should I really heal Simon's, Simon Peter's mother-in-law? Is this a good thing to do? Folks, when you understand who's, who's doing what, it saves you a lot of prayer time. It just does. It did for Jesus. Jesus didn't have to question. He didn't have to seek God. He didn't have to try to find out, oh, wait a minute, is God trying to teach me something in this trial? Jesus simply stood up and exercised dominion over the storm. What does that mean? That means storms, natural occurrences, that we know weather occurrences and things like that, could not, therefore, have been part of God's original system. Not in the measure or not in the way that they operate now. But instead must have been a result of the broken spiritual system, the breach in the spiritual system that occurred after the fall. Otherwise, Jesus is operating against the will of the Father. Now, folks, you can take this as far as you want to go. When Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fishes, what is it telling us? He that's seen the Father has seen, has seen me. Or, I'm sorry, Jesus said, he that's seen me has seen the Father. What is he showing us when he multiplies the loaves and the fishes? It's showing us that God's original system was for natural things to be governed by your words. When Jesus cursed the fig tree and it die, dries up from the root and dies overnight, what does that mean? Does that mean God didn't want trees? Well, we know he had trees. He planted trees in the Garden of Eden. So is God against trees and that's why Jesus cursed it? No, it shows us the original system was that natural things were destined, were created to be governed by the words of man because that's how he exercises dominion. Now, folks, stop and think about what that means. If there's cancer growing in somebody's body, the natural course, according to the system that we live under now, the system where Satan is the god of this world, if there's cancer growing in the body, that natural system, that natural course of this world system would be for it to grow and grow and grow, multiply, to continue to invade different parts of the body until eventually a person dies. Right? That's the natural course. But the Bible says that's a breach in spirit because God's original system was set up where man exercised dominion over all the things that were here on the earth through his words through the authority of His words. That means just like Jesus cursed the fig tree and just like Jesus rebuked the fever, you can curse cancer and see it dry up and wither in your body. That's God's system. That's the system that the Bible gives us evidence of. John Alexander Dowie was a, a minister that, uh, uh, that was ministering primarily in the late 1800s, a little bit into the, the early 1900s. 
but um, uh, there was the, the mode of transportation. He was a Scottish minister, and so the mode of transportation between America and, and uh, Scotland, the only way he could go was by ocean liner. And so he made uh, 14 trips, if I remember correctly, he made 14 trips across the ocean between Scotland and, and America. Uh, eventually he moved to America and established his ministry here, but, but prior to that he'd go back and forth from time to time. And he said that he never took a trip where there wasn't some storm that arose in the middle of the trip that was some, you know, real difficult storm and threatened the boat and threatened the lives of the people and upset everybody and that kind of stuff. He said without fail, every time, every one of the 14 trips, he said he'd walk out to the bow of the boat, command the storm to cease, and it would stop and they'd go on. And that caused everybody to know somebody special is coming. Well, why was he able to do that? Because he understood that God's original system was for man to exercise dominion over the, everything that God created here on the earth. Folks, God created your body. Your words, the authority of your words, exercises dominion over your own flesh. Turn with me over to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. First John chapter 3, we'll start reading in verse 7. He says, Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He meaning God. So to do, do righteousness would be to show or exhibit your own righteousness, which is of God. Verse 8, He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. Now notice the last part of verse 8. Now I don't know whether they made a good good division between chapters and verses here or maybe maybe the last part of uh, the verse should have been an, uh, the start of another verse i don't know I, i'm i'm not that scholarly to be able to give you that kind of answer but i do know this i know he's talking about the difference between operating in sin and operating in righteousness and then he says for this purpose contrasting sin and righteousness he said for this purpose was the son of god manifested what purpose that he might destroy the works of the devil now, the context that he speaks this in is so that we could live up to the righteousness that Jesus makes us through his sacrifice and that we should put away sin because we've been made righteous. He speaks to his little children. That means he's talking to people that are saved. He's not talking to the world. He's not saying, now, you sinners get saved and then everything will be all right. And if that was true, wouldn't we, wouldn't we love that? No, just getting saved doesn't make everything right. And just getting saved doesn't mean you have, extra, you have dominion over your flesh that wants to still do wrong. It means then you have to learn about what belongs to you so that you can exercise dominion over your flesh. So notice what he said. For this purpose, the difference between sin and righteousness, for this purpose was the Son of God manifested. For what purpose? That he might destroy the works of the devil. Now, folks, please notice the word works is plural. that he might destroy the works of the devil. So many times the church nowadays looks at the work of the devil as relating to sin. And folks, there's no question about that. Sin was the original problem. But it's not the result that really caused the problem for the world. Here's what I mean. In the Garden of Eden, God's made everything, puts man in the middle of it and says, this is your playground. He says, dress and keep the garden. He said, now I've only got one rule. Only got one rule. Folks, I want you to understand, God did not give... Adam, 2,600 rules to keep. 
He didn't set him a curfew. He didn't tell him, do this, don't do this. He didn't say any of that. He said, I got one rule. You can eat of every tree that's here except one. Now, here's why. Not because I'm God and I say so and bless God, you better do what I tell you. No, he says, here's the reason why. In the day that you eat thereof of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Now, folks, I want you to notice, he did not say, Adam, in the day that you disobey me, you become a sinner. But I thought sin was the problem. No, sin is the entrance to death. The problem, Adam, is that if you disobey me, that in, in itself is a sin. But the problem is it will cause you to die. Now, he can't be talking about physical death because Adam didn't die for 930 years after, until 930 years after he disobeyed God. So if he's not talking about physical death, he said, in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. He can't be talking about physical death. What is he talking about? He's talking about spiritual death. He's saying, don't disobey me, Adam, because if you do disobey me, you will die spiritually. In other words, death will begin to reign over you from that point forward. That's where Satan became the god of this world, folks. Jesus said, or Jesus in, in dealing with the devil's temptation, the devil came to Jesus and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said, fall down, Jesus, and worship me, and I will give you these kingdoms, for it has been delivered unto me. Now, if the devil was lying, some people say, well, you know, the devil, you can't believe anything that he says. If Jesus went along with what he said as if it was true when it was not true, then that made Jesus a partner to a lie. If the devil had spoken a lie and Jesus did not expose it as a lie, then that means Jesus either didn't know, which means he couldn't be the Son of God, or he took part in the devil's ploy, whatever it was. Jesus did not correct him. Jesus knew he was telling him the truth. It was a bona fide, legitimate temptation. And so what did Jesus do? He said, get thee behind me, Satan. He said, it is written, man shall worship God, in him only shalt thou serve. He didn't say, you're lying. You don't have the, the power of all these kingdoms, the authority of all these kingdoms. He said, I'm not going to bow down to get, to, to get anything from you. What does that mean? That means the devil told him the truth, that it was delivered to him. When? Isn't authority over the kingdoms of the earth the thing that would have naturally progressed for Adam and Eve if they had continued to operate in the system that God had given them and not disobeyed in the Garden of Eden? They would have continued to have dominion over all the works of God's hands, everything that was here on the earth, everything that man developed. It would have still been under the man's dominion. There would have been no breach in the spiritual system. So when was it delivered unto Satan? When Adam and Eve disobeyed God. That's where sin and death began to rule and reign on the earth. But never, ever, ever did God's original plan for man to have dominion change. Never. God even made a way in the Old Testament before Jesus ever came on the scene. God made a way for man to exercise dominion through sacrifices, through offering him gifts, through bringing them temporarily back under an umbrella of his protection under his covenant. A covenant is just simply an agreement. Folks, whether you know it or not, that's what he tried to make with Adam in the Garden of Eden. He said, obey me and don't eat of this tree that I've forbidden and you'll have dominion over everything that I've got. That was a covenant that he was making and it had one rule, don't touch this tree. That's it. Then, to restore man, he makes a covenant with Abraham 
and says to Abraham, because I'm on your side, everything I've got is yours, everything you've got is mine. You serve me, you obey me, and I'll bless you. I'll do great things for you. What did he do for him? He made him rich. He operated in such a way that Abraham prayed for people to get well, and they did. He has a right standing with God so that when God plans to, to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham stands before the face of the Lord and says, wait a minute, it wouldn't be right for you to kill everybody in town if there's 50 righteous people there. He begins to negotiate with God, negotiate with the Lord about whether or not the Lord will carry out his plan based on who's righteous in the city. Doesn't sound to me like somebody has been dominated by the devil. Does it you? Then the law of Moses comes along. What's the law of Moses for? The law of Moses is to show man, you can't do this on your own. That's why you need a Savior. But the covenant is yours. Just obey the sacrifices. Just bring the sacrifice yearly. Just do the things that you're supposed to do. And even though you can't keep the law, even though you know you need a Savior, I'll still do great things for you. And that's what Israel did. Then Jesus comes on the scene and says, Guys, now... It's being restored the way that God originally wanted it. And that's what causes the people in Luke chapter 4 to say, wow, what kind of teaching is this? His disciples see him exercise dominion over the earth. They see him exercise dominion over water, change it into wine. They see him exercise dominion over bread and multiply it. Where did it come from? Jesus just simply gave thanks for it and broke it. An act of faith. And then all of a sudden it multiplies in the, in the disciples' baskets. Where did it come from? You tell me. Did God turn air into bread? I don't know how it worked. Do you? It materialized out of something that you couldn't see. Why? Because Jesus exercised dominion. Jesus rebukes the storm. What happened? How did the storm stop? I don't know. I'm sure there'd be some scientific uh, explanation for, well, okay, that would have meant these upper atmosphere air currents stopped or changed direction. I don't know. Jesus, and Jesus didn't have to stand and say, all right, now you east winds, you start going that way, and you west winds, you start going that way, and you water that wave. Stop that right now. He didn't have to do anything. He just said, peace be still. What's he doing? He's exercising dominion over that which God has created. Jesus comes upon people that are possessed with the devil or oppressed to some degree. The devil is exercising dominion in their lives. And what does he do? He rebukes the evil spirits and he says, come out. What does Jesus have to do with the evil spirits in somebody else? He doesn't stop and say, now how did this get in there? And how long has it been there? And what's his name? I get amused by people that think they know how to deal with the devil, trying to get the names for everything. Show me anywhere where Jesus asked what somebody's name was except the one instance of all the hundreds of times that he cast the devil out. There was one time he said, what's your name? He said, my name's Legion for we are many. So what did Jesus do? He said, go into the pigs. Well, that wasn't his pattern then, was it? He didn't ask the devil's name that was operating this guy in the synagogue, did he? What makes people think that they should? Foolishness. So what does Jesus do? Jesus sees someone over whom the devil is exercising dominion and he takes authority over it. Shut up and come out. 
I love that pattern. Peter's mother-in-law. He rebukes a fever. Now, what was this? It could have been some kind of major fever, something like, that we would know of as scarlet fever or something like that. In the, um, in the ancient world, fevers were only classified as greater or lesser. That's the only classification that they had. So this could have been some kind of scarlet or rheumatic fever or typhoid fever or something like that. It could have been critical, you know, life-threatening condition. Or it could have been just a minor thing. We don't know. Either way, it's the devil exercising dominion over Peter's mother-in-law, and so Jesus rebukes it, and it leaves. Jesus answers the fig tree. He goes to the fig tree looking for food. It should be time for it to produce, but there's nothing on it. It's green. The leaves are green. Now, from what I understand, in Israel, still the same way with fig trees over there now, the figs and the leaves come at the same time. So if it's got leaves on it, that's a sign that the figs are ready. But he goes to the fig tree and there's nothing on it. So what does Jesus do? The Bible says in, in, Matthew, or in Mark chapter 11, it says, And Jesus answered it. What's he doing? He's talking to trees. He answers it. What does he mean? It means he's exercising dominion. Your words exercise dominion. It's the means whereby you exercise dominion in any and every area of your life, folks. Jesus answered it saying, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. What's he doing? He's showing us that God must not want any unfruitful, God's not behind any unfruitful circumstance in your life. Because if God was behind the unfruitful circumstance and Jesus rebukes it, he's working contrary to the will of God, working against God, his Father, which makes him a lawbreaker. I know I keep saying the same thing over and over again, but do you understand what I'm saying? In every case, Jesus is exercising dominion. And instead of turning around and saying to the disciples, in the case of the tree, for example, in Mark chapter 11, Jesus does not say, when they call it in question, they say, wow, Master, look, the fig tree which you cursed yesterday is dead today. Jesus does not turn around and say, yeah, yeah, guys, I've been trying to tell you and prove to you that I'm the Son of God. Which is what most of the church world thinks that was the basis for Jesus doing the works that he did. But he said it wasn't. He said the basis for the works that he did was twofold. Number one, he was the son of man. Number two, he was showing us an example of how God intends things to be. Now, what does that mean? That means he was operating as a man, not as the son of God. He was operating as a man, exercising dominion on the earth, and that's why he taught us how to do it too. If you could ever find somebody that Jesus, that came to Jesus for healing, that Jesus said, I'm sorry, this sickness is from God and He wants you to have this. <laughs> if that were ever the case, then the church would have a right to claim that maybe sometimes sickness is something that God uses. But since you cannot find that, you nor I nor any minister has a right to say that's what God does. Because Jesus said just the opposite. He said, He that has seen me has seen the Father. You can't find any person that Jesus turned away for healing that came to him. Not one. Why? Because Jesus knew that it was the will of God for everybody to walk in health. Now, Jesus didn't just do it for everybody. There were many cases where Jesus said, according to your faith, be it done unto you. What's he saying? He's saying, according to the dominion that you exercised, that's the result you're going to get. How God anointed Jesus in Nazareth. 
with the Holy Ghost and power who went about doing good and healing. I'm so glad God identified good as healing because so much of the church world nowadays wants to say the sickness is good and God's using it. But the Bible says that healing is good. Jesus went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, all over whom the devil was exercising dominion through sickness. Why? For God was with him. Does that mean, therefore, since Jesus is our example, that when God's with us, we'll heal people that are oppressed of sickness too? Must be. Jesus said, the works that I do shall you do also, and even greater works than these shall you do because I go unto my Father. Folks, you've got dominion. Whether you know it or not, whether you ever accept it or not, whether you ever walk in it or not, God has given you dominion over sin, death, sickness, and poverty. Those are the things Jesus died for. You have dominion. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that your word reveals the truth. Thank you, Father, that your word shows us not only what belongs to us, but how we can walk in it. We declare, say this after me, we declare in the name of Jesus that we were healed by Jesus' stripes. Therefore, we exercise dominion over our bodies. We curse sickness. We command it to leave our bodies. We refuse in the name of Jesus the right for sickness to remain in our flesh. Thank you, Father, that by your word and according to our faith, we are healed. Now lift your hands and thank you because that's true. Yeah, but I don't feel anything, Pastor Mike. Doesn't matter what you feel. Doesn't make one bit of difference what you feel. You just exercise dominion over sickness in your body. The Bible says that God's system was set up for your words to come to pass. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for making it so easy. Forgive us for making it so hard. It just simply takes us believing what you said. Just simply believing what you said. And by the words of our mouth, believing your words in our heart, it causes tumors to disappear. It causes skin cancer to vanish. It causes us to be raised up, even as by the hand of God. Oh, Father, we love you. We thank you so much. It's so good to be healed, Lord. It's so good to be healed. By faith, it's so good to be healed. Thank you that we were redeemed by the curse of the, from the curse of the law, by the precious blood of Jesus. And that curse of the law includes sickness. We declare we shall never be moved. We shall never be dominated by death because eternal life is ours. We shall never be dominated by sin because we've been made righteous. We shall never be dominated by lack or poverty because the chastisement of our peace was upon Jesus. And we shall never be dominated by sickness because with His stripes we were healed. We'll not be moved, Father. We'll not be moved. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being a part of us. You're dismissed.